more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. A good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is the second hour, and we have lots to talk about. With me, I have, uh, this is Jake McClure, and with me, I have... Jeff McClure, it's, I think. You think. I, I think. I think you're Jeff McClure as well. Uh, and it's not coincidence that we share the same last name. In fact, there's a relativity issue going on in here somewhere. Mm, duality. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of McClures in the world, but uh, there's only one Jake and Jeff that go together as far as I can tell. As far as I know as well. Although there might be a Jake and Jeff McClure out there that aren't us together somewhere. I think it'd be hard to find though. So you may be listening to something absolutely unique. Or maybe not. Now that's that's redundant all over again. Absolutely unique. Mm-hmm. And well, you can be a little bit unique. It's kind of like being almost pregnant or sort of pregnant. Well, I think if a person is either pregnant or they're not pregnant. Uh, did you know you could get pregnanter? No. It, How do you get pregnanter? It's very rare. It's a, it, it's when the the woman who is pregnant uh, ovulates one more time a month later and um, gets pregnant again. It doesn't happen very often, but there are documented cases of people getting pregnanter. I'm not sure that the word is in the dictionary for pregnanter, but it should be. Is it more pregnant or pregnanter? I don't know that either one of those necessarily applies often enough to get its own description. It's mm, too bad. Then, then we can make up words on our own. So this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we talk about things economic. Um, if you'd like to contact us, this is a recorded episode, recorded second hour. But you're certainly welcome to give us an email at either jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And, or you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, and you can see we can post something there and we'll get the message. The important thing is if you want to communicate with us, that's the way to do it. Yeah, and, and I have had people literally ha- ask me this. Do you actually read your emails? I yes. do. Yes. We do. First thing in the morning, first thing I do is – Remember how the paperless office and email was going to save us tremendous amounts of time? Yeah, it didn't happen. It's just taking all our time away, all times of the hour and day. Yep. I spend probably over an hour, an hour and a half a day doing other reading emails. Yep. Combined? I think that's about right. Yeah. So there's not a day that I'm working that I leave unread emails. So yes, we read our emails. If you want us to, to talk about something on the air and we find it appropriate... We will. If you're one of those types that likes to be a little bit uh, prankish, um, we don't talk about that as much. And that happens sometimes. But generally speaking, the emails that we get are good questions and we use them on the air. So let's talk about the economy a little bit. There's, a, there's several things going on in the economy, one of which we haven't we talked about a little bit kind of in passing in previous uh, radio programs. But there is a major move that's going on that I don't think is going to end when the coronavirus ends. And I think and the reason I think that is because people are making permanent changes. And that is people are moving out of the cities. 
the uh, rents are dropping in the major cities on the east and west coast, particularly the rents for apartments are dropping, which they haven't done in a long time. The uh, the uh, the non-occupy rate is up above five percent for the first time in Manhattan in in anybody's memory. Uh, the prices that that are having to be posted to get people to actually rent a, a flat or a, an apartment in Manhattan on the island itself has dropped. And at the same time, we're seeing a boom in suburban housing buying. Yeah. And we're seeing the same thing on the West Coast. In San Francisco, you're seeing rents and prices drop in the most expensive parts of San Francisco, the Bay Area, and areas in the suburb, prices going up because... There's a determination that we can work from home now just as effectively as working from work, and in some cases, more effectively. I think this may be a major shift because, among other things, it was, it's was it been assumed up until now that if a company wanted to expand, they needed to do it in a uh, metropolitan area mm-hmm. because that's where the people were. That's where the professionals are, and they had to have more office space, which meant the price of office space goes up. But I think uh, there's a realization that we have and a realization I think that's going on across the country that if everybody doesn't have to work in the building together, if they can if they can work digitally and remotely and be effective, then that's two things that don't have to happen. One, you don't have to have more office space. And secondly, you don't have to pay people as much because they're not forced to go into high rent areas to live right. or mute for a long time. I just read uh, an interesting article in The Economist that I thought was interesting. They estimate that the average worker in the United States so far this year has saved $2,000 in commuting expenses. Yeah. And that's not even counting the insurance checks that people are getting back or, or getting back as a, as a credit in their car insurance because there's so few people driving. And that's not, and by the way, the $2,000 doesn't count time. By the way, I was amazed to read that the typical commute is 45 minutes. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, if I, I used to live in Austin, and I would drive 45 minutes to work and 45 minutes back. Of course, I was driving to Salado, uh, which is north, and it's outside of the traffic. It was more distance. But the reality is that it was very normal living in Austin to talk to other people about their commute time in Austin, and some of them had an hour and a half. They weren't even leaving town. We've gotten used to the fact that once you get a eight-lane highway out there, there has to be ten lanes. And anytime if it's six lanes, it has to go to eight lanes. And so there's continuous construction on the highway, which is very expensive and very time-consuming for the people who are driving through it, and very inconvenient. And, if we and can, what those extra lanes are for is just extra parking room when rush hour. <laughs> <laughs> there's some truth in that. Um, the, the issue is that if we can continue to expand our economy without everybody having to be crammed together in cities because of digital communications, then that will be a tremendous leap forward. And I think it's going to occur. I really do. I think more and more people are able to operate remotely. Uh, there's going to be some people still have to come together and be physically lo- co-located. And I think people will have to come in occasionally and physically co-locate. Mm-hmm. But I also think we'll see better and better uh, ability to function. And I think 5G has a lot to do with that, by the way. Yeah. We're, for instance, we could be doing this radio. I'm 
this is Jeff. I'm physically not in the studio. Jake's not in any, is in, is physically not in the studio. He is in one place. I'm in another, but we're doing a radio program together. So that's three locations. You've got you, you sitting there in a different location than me, me sitting here and then it being played from a studio. So there's three locations involved. And there's, there's a little more to it than that. Um, what we've discovered is if we try to do it over the internet, there's enough lag between us that it makes it awkward. And if you've tried internet calling or even in Zoom, you, if you, you get used to it after a while, but there's a, there's a certain lack of spontaneity because of the fact that you recognize that when you say something, it's a moment later before people hear it. And so the, we wind up talking over each other. What we've discovered is using a 4G telephone system is more efficient than using the internet to talk. And when the 5G system comes out, from all I've read about it, we don't have 5G yet, it actually will be considerably faster and considerably better uh, insofar as communication. So when 5G rolls around and we finally get it in place, I think people's ability to be to work remotely will go up accordingly. That's not even counting the concept of what Starlink is. Um, are you familiar with Starlink? No, I'm not. Starlink is what's getting in the way of all your pictures when you look up at the sky. Um, oh. Those of you that don't know, old Elder Baldy here, Jeff, is a astrophotographer as a hobby as well. He takes pictures of nebula and galaxies and uh, in all the pretty colors that you see in posters and so on. He's one of the guys that does that, and he knows what color oxygen is and what color hydrogen is and all that good stuff. Hydrogen. Hydrogen is what? Red. Red. Oxygen is blue. Yep. But sulfur is, is hydrogen. Sulfur is what? More red than hydrogen. So we th- this concept of what is Starlink and how did we leave from internet to this? Starlink is uh, SpaceX's internet connection network of satellites. Um, and they're already in beta test in the United States of broadband internet connection everywhere. Uh, By this time next year, their plan is to have broadband internet everywhere, which might throw China for a bit of a loop because they've got firewalls on everything. And if you've got a company that has satellites many, many thousands of satellites in constant orbit over every place on the planet. It's really hard for China to say, hey, don't do that. It's going to be an interesting thing. Yeah, it'd be hard for China to say don't do that, except for the fact that if you can't own a computer that's capable of linking to Starlink in China without going to prison, it definitely will slow things down. You do need the hardware. And but, but what the, the point I'm making is that we're making massive leaps forward in the availability and the speed of our internet connections, which makes being virtually somewhere much easier, much easier to be in a, in a conference with someone. And since mid-March, I have not met face-to-face with any clients. Uh, we do all of our... Um, meetings either on the phone or through Teams. Now, why Teams? Why not Zoom? Zoom's so popular. Well, because Zoom is not encrypted. And we talk about financial stuff, and I'd rather not have 
uh, who knows who coming in and, and listening and taking notes or putting their two cents in. Um, because it doesn't really add up to two pennies when they do that. It somehow subtracts. So the the infrastructure of the internet is getting a big increase, it, and it's not government. This the internet was created by the government, and then kind of by the by the phone companies, and now we're seeing the next layer where it's not a traditional phone, even a cell phone. Uh, but Verizon didn't start out as cell phones. AT and T didn't start out as cell phones. Uh, SpaceX certainly didn't start out as internet, but the end result might be that we have satellite cell phone service through this as well. Um, and, and we won't even consider it cell phone. It'll be more like uh, teams, more like zoom, only it will be how you're contacted instead of with the number. And if you think about that for a minute, it seems a little shocking at the surface. The fact that you have a number that you're either expected to memorize, which most people give uh, their contact information out, and then nobody else memorizes the phone number. Do you remember memorizing phone numbers? Yes, I do. As do I. We spent huge amounts of our brain power memorizing phone numbers. I remember my phone numbers from being a kid. Uh, deep down memorization. I remember my grandmother's telephone number, the first one I memorized. three nine five. 395. That was the yeah. phone number. Yeah. That was the phone. And that's serious, guys. This is this is real because in Night of Oklahoma, you would pick up the phone receiver and you'd hear operator and you would say 395, please. She said, I'm connecting you now. And you hear this and my grandmother would answer the phone. Magic. And now you say, I can't say the, the key words or everybody that's listening to the radio right now is going to have their Amazon devices or Google devices start calling people. It's one of the scary things <laughs> <laughs> about radio. There's some key words you shouldn't say. Um, but like, right now you say, instead of calling a person and saying, call 395, you say, hey, fill in the blank, um, call so-and-so. And it just does it for you. Uh, the fact that you have to memorize your own phone number might be a thing of the past. In 10 years, you might not carry a cell phone that has a phone number. It may just simply be an internet-capable device that you use sort of like a phone in a video sort of way and may not even be the thing you put in your pocket in the same way. I mean, the, the screen is really what you're looking at. And if you have glasses that do the same thing or some other technology that allows you to utilize it. All this is saying is that we have some major changes occurring right now, and it's hard to recognize how major they are, but, you know, 2008, 2007, that's when the iPhone came out. We were still using flip phones before that. If you were really on the ball, you had a BlackBerry. You had a little keyboard and your thumbs were going on that keyboard. That's not that long ago. That's 12 years. And technology is increasing in speed as it's coming out, not decreasing. So 12 years from now, we're going to be looking back to now at something that we're doing and going, whoa, that was so absolute. That's as bad as a flip phone. Whatever it is. We don't know what it is. 
Driving. Driving. That may be a big part of it. Um, although the, we can see that coming. We could not see at the time that the iPhone came out that, hey, everybody's going to have a smartphone in 10 years. We thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Wonder what I can use it for until you started using it. Uh, it, it came out kind of out of nowhere. The interesting thing is um, camera sales have fallen off dramatically. Or have risen dramatically. If you count the iPhone as a smartphone yeah. as a camera. Right, because <laughs> everything has cameras now. You've got, I've got a camera in my computer. I've got a camera in my phone. I've got cameras in my house everywhere. Uh, I mean, if you think camera sales have fallen off only if they're only cameras that don't talk to anything, don't communicate with anything but themselves. It's crazy. We've got lots well, of technology coming. What we were talking about, I think it's important, is how this is going to change business and how it's going to change real estate. It is changing real estate. We're seeing some interesting things in the middle of this pandemic. We're seeing real estate sales, residential real estate sales, rise dramatically. We're seeing new house starts uh new house purchases rise dramatically over where they were last year. And that has to do with the fact that people are moving away from the concentrated big city areas out into the suburbs. There's a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which uh, we have some personal uh, experience with a family member, is that the taxes in the big cities have gotten so high on real estate that it's absurd. As a matter of fact, one of the issues of Texas that eventually is going to bite us, I think, is the fact that our property taxes are getting so high in Texas that it makes it counterproductive in some cases to live in Texas. Now, people coming from California won't say that. People coming from California will say, look how low the taxes are here. Look how reasonable the house prices are in Austin. Uh, But I think there's people starting to move from Texas into lower-cost states uh, where the the, uh, weather is not quite as extreme as it is here in Texas. And... uh, this is a reality, and, and it's going to cause a major reshuffling in the United States. We see these reshufflings, by the way, about once a century towards the beginning of the century. Uh, we saw a mass movement 100 years ago from rural areas into the big cities. Uh, and again, there's there's evidence of that right here in central Texas. If you want to go look for it, go just east of I-35 to the towns of Holland and, and Taylor and any of the towns just east of I-35. And look at the old houses that are run down and collapsed that, that once were very, very expensive houses. And not just there. The farmlands, you can be driving around farms and see a house sitting in a field with a tree growing through the living room. That used to be a functional farm and mm-hmm. people were very proud to live there. So this major change, when we get a major technological change, and we've had a couple, we've had several of them, the telephone being one. Uh, the internal combustion engine being the bigger one, 100 years ago, caused a massive reshuffling in the way that business is done and real estate prices in the United States. Now we're seeing it happen again, only we're having it. It's called digitalization. Some people call it AI. We really don't have artificial intelligence at this point. We have smart machines. We have machines that learn. But we really don't have artificial intelligence at this point. But we have smart machines doing things like driving cars. And actually, at this moment in time, except for bad weather conditions, a self-driving car is substantially, and I mean substantially like a, like a 99 times safer 
than a car being driven by a person. When you look at the total fatalities. And even in bad weather situations, it's better. It's just not, not perfect. It's just a lot better than humans in a bad weather situation. The mere fact that when a person gets killed in a self-driving or even semi-self-driving car, it makes headlines all across the nation tells you something. Because if a person gets killed when they're driving a car themselves, it sometimes doesn't even make the local paper. Yeah, not even the local paper. You might get in the obituary eventually. So that is going to make a phenomenal difference. And it's going to change. I can't even begin to predict how everything is going to change. One of the things I can say, though, is that we will be more spread out. We'll be more out into the suburbs. We'll be more into small towns. And there will be less concentration in the cities as time goes forward. Um, one of the interesting things about Amazon is they're discovering that uh, uh, as people move out of the central parts of towns and they've abandoned large buildings, Amazon moves in and sets them up as uh, as distribution centers. They're also discovering that Amazon is also discovering that if they can get into rural areas with their distribution centers, that works really well too. This is going to change things quite a lot. Eventually, it's going to change things more. In the near term, by the way, when this pandemic is over, people will go back to personal shopping to a large degree, but they won't ever go completely back, I don't think. I think there's certain things, and I did this just two days ago. I was looking for a specific uh, type of uh, tool, and I would, I even, I out of, out of uh, loyalty, I phoned the local hardware store to see if they had it. it really wasn't an unusual tool. It's a, it's a device. Uh, for airing up my tires in my in our locally in our cars one where you can just snap it on there it's got a battery in it set the temperature set the uh, pressure you want and it fills the tire up and that used to be done at filling stations it's not it's very difficult to do it at filling stations anymore i know we were traveling last year and going from filling station we went to three different filling stations looking three different gas stations looking for a air pressure device that actually worked we put money in them and they wouldn't work and they were very difficult to use they had to be held tightly on there uh that's beside the point the thing is the local hardware store didn't have it i ordered it from amazon and it was here two days later right and i think i'm i'm gotten to, i discovered as i was doing that that i'm used to if i want a specific tool or a specific item that may not be available in the local store, whatever store it is that's local. I want that specific item. I've gotten very, very picky. Right. I'm not willing to sell for second best. And and uh, so then I wind up ordering it from Amazon or in some cases from Walmart.com, mostly from Amazon. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up here is that Amazon's losing its primary place in people's minds for ordering online. Walmart is making an inroad in that uh, and so this this concept, just like when Apple came out with the first smartphone, they had zero competition. Amazon came out with a method of using uh, distribution centers to ship things to people. Well, Walmart already has distribution centers. So they say, well, how do we modify this stuff? And they finally made enough progress in the modifications that it looks like we're going to have Walmart and Amazon slowly kind of inching into the UPS and FedEx realm. If you want to ship somebody something to someone else at some point in the future, you might call up Walmart or Amazon and say, I need to get this to somewhere. 
It's um, interesting. Amazon is already moving on ahead into the new areas. The majority of their revenue no longer comes from selling things to people. Right. It comes from, well, it's selling things. It's just not the same things. Uh, there's advertisement is one thing, but that's not the big one. The big one is space and servers online. The cloud. Yeah. Which is no cloud at all. Well, it depends on how far away from it you are. <laughs> <laughs> everything's cloudy the far enough away. If you're far enough away, everything's cloudy. Uh, and that's another thing that's, that, that is sneaking up on us. The data we have on our computers is in most cases, at least in the computers we use, not necessarily on the computer. Mm-hmm. It's we, the, you, the Internet has become so ubiquitous and so vital to our activities that without the Internet, and this is a, this is a crucial element we haven't really dealt with in our systems yet, and that is when our Internet connectivity goes down, we are left kind of sitting high and dry and able, unable to do anything significant. We, we in, in our office, we have safeguards against that, but it's not everywhere. And when, when we're local, working remotely, it gets very difficult. So Internet has become essential for business at this point. It is no longer a, hey, we can do this online. It is, we have to do this online, which means that the Internet has become strategically important for any business, you've got to have multiple multiple methods of getting on just in case, and, and we've got that. We at our office, we have four different versions of methods to get on, and at any given remote offsite location that we have, uh, we have a few that are still only have one connection in, but most people we have a, a primary and a secondary just in case. And do they have the cell phone as well as the internet? And right, a hot a hot spot on the cell phone. Uh, or their local internet provider that's got an encrypted access point. And then once uh, Starlink comes on board, I suspect we'll be picking up another one. Right. And and that's the sort of thing that just expect that in the future. And I wouldn't be surprised if many of the service providers start doing that, saying we have multiple locations. So when we talk about Amazon and the cloud, we're absolutely not recommending that you buy Amazon or Tesla or any of the things that we're talking about, by the way. These are are examples of early stage innovation. And early stage isn't usually the ones that make it all the way through. Um, They're great companies, don't don't get me wrong, but we're not saying go out and buy them. Um, Many of the cloud, all of the cloud uh, servers that I'm aware of have multiple on-site hardline connections to the internet. That's what you're part of what you're paying for when you get that. And as a kid, not too much of a kid, I was still a I was an older teenager. I remember we I would play a lot of video, video games, and my brothers and I would be sitting around, and we would talk about this concept of what happens when bandwidth becomes faster than processing speed. Or when bandwidth becomes faster than hard drive speed. And in many cases, we're already there. We're already at a point where the browser can pull up materials faster uh, than you would be able to open the same document from your hard drive. And that's a big deal because that allows remote operation in a way that couldn't happen before. If you had semi-mediocre computer... Uh, you wouldn't be able to do a video conference directly from your computer with the, you know, with a camera uh, software and the 
conference direct from one point to another. Now we have things like Zoom, where the browser has uh, the algorithms that allow video, and they're called codexes, that allow a compression on video that is a lot more like the way the human eye looks in that it most of the stuff that's not changing on the video, it isn't being updated. It's not being sent back and forth because it's not new. It's just saying this is still the same thing. If you have a white wall in the background, that white wall isn't changing. The video doesn't bother sending it. It's just saying this is still the same. Um, so technology isn't just a new hardware. It's new ways of thinking about how to transmit data, uh, new software to make it easier to transmit something that would take a long time to transmit otherwise. Uh, all of that leads to faster communication faster uh, ability to do business. It also encases, and this this is a little bit of a horror story that I get to tell because it happened to me. If it happened to a client, I wouldn't be able to get to, to say it. I finished the refinance of my house today. We had a closing. And it may have been the worst experience as a mortgage that I'm aware of and not for the traditional means. I, there were no problems with the credit. There was no problems with with the finances, no problems with getting back and forth any of the paperwork, which wasn't paperwork, by the way. It was electronic it, until we got to the closing, and then they printed it all out in paper so that we could sign it with ink so that they could scan it all back into the computer yeah. and, and email it to people. Um, but the problem was that the bank that I was using was not work, used to working remotely internally, so the underwriter couldn't talk to the mortgage broker guy and the mortgage broker had a hard time talking to his boss and so the paperwork would get on somebody's desk and get stalled there and by desk I mean desktop on the computer and get stalled there and they'd be working on something else um, so it's going to be difficult for some of the older stodgier companies to catch up uh, I, the bank that I used, and I'm actually going to say their name on the on the air, it was Renaissance Bank, and they had a great interest rate. I've got a really great interest rate, but it took me five months to get a refinance done that should have taken less than a month, and it wasn't due to slowness of paperwork. It was due to slowness internal to the bank of moving things around. They're really busy. And their technology isn't there to keep up with it in a time when they're not working face-to-face -face in the bank with each other, where there's other places that have picked up the new platform and are running with it in a way that causes their refinances to go much faster than normal. Uh, and so you're going to start to see that as a differentiator in, in companies. Well, I think one of the issues is that there's, particularly in financial transactions, is there are certain areas that because people want to hang on to their jobs. They haven't automated. And right. It's just somebody will come along and figure a way to automate it. For example, I'm also refinancing and the longest time period was the title check. And the reason the title check took so long is a lot of that, a lot of the title information that has to be checked is still in print. It's not been digitalized. And so a title attorney has to go back and dig through the record of the property all the way back to the beginning of the property to make sure it was always properly transacted. It's just in, in the counties, 
where the, this, you know, obviously, you know, one county is responsible for the whole thing, but they haven't digitalized their entire process. Right. I, I use the same title company that I bought the house through. And that would normally mean, hey, this is going to be extra easy because the title was already checked and it wasn't that long ago. Interest rates have dropped a lot. So, I mean, it's two years ago, a little over two years ago that I bought the place originally. But the title company did a full research on that. Well, they're required to do full research every time because I made it, might have done something silly in the last two years that they don't know about. So they go back through the entire process again, and it, that takes time. Uh, once that's digitized, once uh, the location of that stuff is available in a way, and this is, I'm going to use the, the, the trendy word here, blockchained and i don't mean in some kind of a cryptocurrency i mean in a system where uh there's a shared ledger book where everybody knows who owns what and some of you are going well what about privacy have you ever been on the county website you can figure out who owns what right now there's no privacy there never was you could have 30 years ago gone to the county courthouse and started saying hey i want to look through the files it's what's called public information. <laughs> uh, this, is not, this is not secret stuff. So why is it taking so long to digitize? Well, there's a good reason for that. There's a lot of people that make a lot of money by holding that stuff hostage because uh, it takes time to get it out of paper and into digits. And it takes somebody coordinating to get those digits to remain updated. But at some point, the title companies are just going to keep records of all transactions that are going on with all properties and until they're out of a job. And that's a fascinating area because a big chunk of what they do is just verifying that the person that lives on the property owns the property. It's, this, it's the reason why if you get a, a, an inheritance of $200,000 and you take the check to the bank and you put it down in the bank and you say, now I'm going to go write a check to buy a, a new car. Well, that check's going to bounce because the bank's not going to let this money go until they've done what the title company does with your property. They verified that it was at the last place and that that place had it, uh, and they verified the place before that. With a shared ledger book, which is what blockchain is, that's an instant thing. And it's, that's in testing with a lot of the major banks right now. Uh, there are bank networks that are coming together on the blockchain, which isn't associated with a cryptocurrency. It isn't some kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea. You can make these things, and they're worth money now. Uh, it is simply a method of transmitting data back and forth so that real-time you can see, hey, this money really exists. You can go buy a car now. And so that's really cool. There's a lot of stuff that's happening it is going to significantly change the workplace. Uh, it's going to significantly change the prices that we pay for things. The title companies make a large amount of money in verifying things because they are vital. You don't want, a bank does not want to give you a loan on a piece of property that you stop paying on and they suddenly cannot foreclose on you because somebody else owned the property. <laughs> for some reason, they frown on that. I don't know why. How many minutes do we have left in this? Um, we've got a uh, little less than 20 minutes left this okay. hour. I want to talk about something that's a little bit different. What is happening? What happens on the other side of, of 
the COVID panic and longer term. And I read an interesting uh, commentary today from Allianz, and they suspect over the next 10 years, the average annual, now this is not compounded, this is simple return, the simple return of the S&P 500 over the next 10 years will be 6%, which is about 5% compounded way below historic norms. And why is that? Because the S&P 500 is so darn high right now. I can't argue with their logic. Um, the S&P 500 is up, is, is multiples on the S&P 500 are so high. It's in what one uh, hedge fund manager called nosebleed territory. There's not a lot of room for it to go up. That's not to say it can't go up because speculators can keep speculating a long time. There's a lot of room for it to go down, and we would have to have phenomenal growth in earnings going forward. I mean, not just in 2021 and 2022, but over the next 10 years, phenomenal growth in earnings to, to continue with the S&P 500 rising at a high rate of speed. So there's a realism there. There's another aspect of that that's very important. Part of the return of the S&P 500 historically has been inflation. I don't know. How many of our listeners remember when a 12% return in the S&P 500 or the, per year on average was normal or the Dow? Mm-hmm. But that's true. But there was also about 6% inflation during that period. So if you think about a 12% return in 6 or 8% inflation, which is what we had, versus a 0% inflation, which is pretty close to what we're having right now, we're actually having a slight disinflation right now. So if we have zero inflation, what would be the expected return of the S&P 500 stock index? And the answer is 5 or 6%. Just based on is, history, yeah. Which, ba- which is basically what Allianz is predicting. And the Federal Reserve is, and the bond market is telling us, at least for the next three years, inflation will be very nearly zero. And this is, this is the weird thing to me. A 30-year Treasury bond is sitting out there at about 1.5% yield. Mm-hmm. Think about that just a minute. In effect... The people who are buying U.S. Treasury bonds, and these are not 30-year U.S. Treasury bonds. These are not people who are poverty-stricken. These are people who have a lot of, in the economic sense, are forecasting that a zero return, that if they if they buy something that, with the intent of holding it for 30 years, which is the way you do with the Treasury, that a 1.5% return will allow them to break even. Now, whether they're right or wrong, I don't know, but there's a lot of people doing it, and they have a lot of money. That means that they expect inflation to be extremely low into the foreseeable future, which is a fact in the economy today, and there's really good good reasons for that. But if that is, in fact, true, then what we would expect to see is about a 6% return in the S&P 500, 6, 6 6.5% return in the S&P 500 over the next 30 years. Now, that's probably a little too far out to be looking. I think 10 years is as far as any reasonable person can look, and even there, I think they're stretching a little bit because there's too many variables. The point point is if you've got a portfolio and you're trying to live off the return from the portfolio, and let's say your portfolio is 60% in the S&P 500. I'm not at all suggesting you buy an S&P 500 index fund here because there's some really negatives, to the, big negatives to that. And we can talk about that too if someone yeah. would like. The S&P 500 has a backward-looking price-to-earnings ratio right now of about 29, which is way above where it should be. And the 
drivers in the S&P 500 have, uh, or the top 10 have an average price earnings ratio of 83 or something like that, mm-hmm. which is third, which means at some point historically when we've gotten there, it's always been ready to take a fall. But that's right. beside the point. Can, Let's can, just say, can I give one example? An example okay. of a company I actually like, Tesla. I like the company. I think it's way too high price. The price to earnings ratio, that means if you take the price of the stock and you say how many years of earnings per share would it take based on this last quarter's earnings, how many years of those would it take to pay me back my my stock price? And right now it's 966 years, which means if you had bought this during the Roman Empire, you would finally get, get enough money to, to actually be in. I mean, it would be the, the Eastern Roman Empire, but it, yeah. but it, you would have finally gotten your stock price back. Now, it doesn't mean that their earnings won't go up in the future. And that's what people are betting on, that their earnings are somehow going to leap into the future. But leaping by that magnitude is just, that's a big bet. That's a really big bet and not one I would take lightly. So if you're going to have a 60-40 stocks portfolio with 60% in the S&P 500, and again, we're not recommending this at all, but it's this kind of the benchmark, and 40% in bonds, intermediate-term bonds, then 60% of your portfolio would be earning 5% a year. So you'd get 3% per year out of that 60% of your portfolio. The other 40% of your portfolio would be earning 1% or maybe a little over 1% a year, um, so you'd get four tenths of 1%. So your entire portfolio would get a 5.4% average annual rate of return. Now you can do the numbers all day long and no matter how you approach it, that's with no expenses, no fees, no taxes, no anything in this imaginary hypothetical portfolio, which by the way, you couldn't do very easily and we don't recommend it. That means that your future return in a retirement or grow or or investment portfolio that the has the kind of rule of thumb 60-40 portfolio is going to be a little over five percent a year going forward. Now, this isn't us saying this is what you will get. This is us looking at history and comparisons and saying, based on history, this is what we do to create expectations. It's kind of like the weatherman doesn't say, yep, it will rain tomorrow. Not unless so there's mean, a hurricane coming. That means if we have one, one and a half percent inflation, you know, if you have a generic portfolio made of index funds and you use the 60-40 generic portfolio, which again, we're not recommending. I'm just saying this is kind of the, the at least in the media, the standard. You probably need to restrict your withdrawals to 3% a year. Because you want to be able to rise with inflation. You want to be able to keep up with your personal cost of living. And people just are not ready to look at an investment portfolio and say, I'm going to take 3% per year out of an investment portfolio, and that's good enough. Of course, it also means that the banks will be paying less than 1% 1 or less like they really are right now. So this is one of the things you need to consider as a real possibility going forward. When the stock market is massively overvalued, and it is right now, by any definition, the S&P 500, and you can look back, by the way, to uh, to the year 2000, the last time it was at this level of valuation. The actual net return after inflation of the S&P 500 did not 
bring it back to zero, did not bring it back to where you had gone had you where you what you invested in the year two thousand for thirteen years. So this is a case where being diversified and having a good plan to buy low and sell high and not being riding along with the tsunami of people who are investing in large cap growth stocks is probably a good idea because I think there's going to be some people severely disappointed in the near future. Yeah, I agree. Uh, dividend yield on the S&P 500 right now. That means if we look at the dividends that have paid out on these stocks over the last 12 months, Divided by today's price, the dividend yield is about 1.79%. Um, what does that mean? Well, it's a traditionally, that's a very low number for the S&P 500. Why is it very low? Because the stock prices are so amazingly high compared to the dividends that are being paid out. But the dividend yield is significantly higher than even the 30-year treasury. Right. Which is shows how upside down the world is. You can get more income from the S&P 500 stock index and in the form of dividends than you can get, you can't. Well, that's the current dividend yield. You would have gotten over the past 12 months more income than if you, I, I I would not say you can get into the future, just, well, just I'm saying if you, bought, if you bought a, if you, if you bought a portfolio of U.S. treasuries 30 years, that are yielding one and a half percent, and you buy into the S and P five hundred that's yielding one point. What do you say? One point eight seven. One point seven six. One point seven nine. One point seven nine percent. You'd actually get more income, on average, per month or per year, over the last year. Oh well, I'm saying it. They, but the dividends are still remaining. They haven't cut dividends dramatically. Right. So. When we're in a position like that, it's hard to argue buying bonds, but people are still buying bonds like mad. Right, exactly. And when you, the stocks are overpriced, bonds are more overpriced. <laughs> there, there is an odd position. Yeah. Um, and this is, I, I had a conversation two nights ago with a colleague in Boston. Uh, he works at a bond management firm. And he writes a newsletter that's an industry journal that people pick up and read from all, for all over the place. By the way, he would like you to read it because he gets a lot of the ideas that he's writing from the newsletter from us. Uh, and he was, he, I read it already, but it, it is certainly in a different framework. But anyway, he, he is... On, what's that? Put me on the list. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if we can do it. Um, the, uh, he is... Uh, he saw a a municipal bond, and and he just throws this out there. It was priced at one fifty. And I and what does that mean? It means that it's fifty percent above its maturity value. What is a maturity value? If you give somebody a loan, and they're going to pay you back, and it's got a balloon payment, they're going to pay you just the interest, interest only loan, and at the end of their payment. Uh, their interest payment to you, they owe you the total of the principal. Let's say the principal is $1,000. That's pretty normal. That's what 100 means in in the bond market, $1,000. Why does it mean that? Because we need to have jargon that the common person doesn't understand. Why did you say 100 when you meant 1,000? Because. Uh, But 150, what's that? It's sort of a percent. Right. 150 is $1,500. So someone bought something 
that will pay out $1,000 at some point when it's mature for $1,500 because the interest rate on it was 6%, and it was a municipal security that wasn't callable. Uh, What does that mean? It means that the municipality can't say, we're going to pay this off early and get lower interest debt. Uh, Matures, you're only going to get $1,000 back. You're not going to get $1,500. Right. And, and so what we talk about when, you know, you need to, if you own bonds, you need to be calculating yield to maturity because if you buy it at 1500 because you're going to get income on it, all of that income is taxable and you don't, you don't get to write off that taxable income against the capital gains loss of the 500 that you lose at the end. Now, municipal bond is not taxable, the interest on it. And some of them are. Usually. Yeah, usually they're not, but some of them are. And and in the case that we were talking about, it was a taxable municipal bond priced. Municipal bond priced yeah. in one? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So well, it it's not based by, it's not backed by the full faith and credit of a municipality. It's, it, it's a revenue bond. Then. Yeah, exactly. It was a toll road bond. Which means if the toll road doesn't do well, man. Yeah. Uh, so what People, that means is is that the bond market and the stock market are are both experiencing weirdness right now, just like the rest of the world. And again, my emotions and my memory tell me that this is 2000. It, it's interesting, 2020. Maybe it's the two and the zero together. 2000, 2020, it's not that different. Yeah. Because in 2000, we saw the same kind of insanity, and I read the same kind of things that I'm reading now, that the stock market may be high price, but it's justified in its high price because of the changes in technology. Well, yeah, except that a lot of the technological shifts that we're counting on, like back then it was dot-coms. We were counting on the dot-coms to take us into the future, and they did. It just wasn't those dot-coms because the infrastructure (laughs) for the Internet wasn't there yet. The, 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 the law and physical pipelines of internets weren't there to support it. And when we talk about, uh, you know, self-driving cars, that's amazing. And there's a lot of research being done by every major car manufacturer has spent large numbers in the billions of dollars on self-driving cars. This is going to happen. Who does it first how well they do it is going to help define this, but we don't know who's going to be the most successful till after the fact. And the new companies that pop up to do it might be the ones that win or they might not be. So betting all your money on the newest technology is a really good way to lose it. Uh, knowing, knowing what's successful at the end. Go ahead. It's happening with the virus vaccines too. Mm-hmm. Various companies, as they come up with good news and they say, oh, we're testing something further along than somebody else is testing something, their stock price jumps up like a rocket ship. Uh, speaking of rocket ships, uh, SpaceX has <laughs> right. caused stock price to jump. And, and Tesla's stock price is astonishing. By the way, Tesla dropped 21%. This is going to be old news by the time this is broadcast. Mm-hmm. Tesla did not make the S and P five hundred to drop twenty one percent. Right, and that is the kind of the reason why we had that correction in the Nasdaq. Well, why would being in the S and P five hundred cause any company to be worth more? 
Uh, and, and if you think of it as the S&P 500 simply a measurement tool, there's no reason except for the prestige of, hey, we're in the S&P 500. Well. Except that there are index funds that have to buy the company. Yes. And, uh, and right now those index funds don't have to buy Tesla. And people were thinking, hey, the price is going to go up. But typically the price goes up about 10% right after being included in the S&P 500. But in this case, Tesla was going into rocket mode, even though Elon Musk is uh, CEO and chairman over on the SpaceX side. It's not publicly traded. Tesla is. They still put rockets on the stock price, and it went rocketing back down the other direction. It went down 20% drop in the entire market would be bear market territory. So Tesla went from stratosphere to bear market in two days and there's an important thing there's an important word there there's there's actually three terms that when i hear them i think we're in trouble one of them is this could go on forever another one is it's different this time and the third one is gonna yeah we get we're out of time if you'd like to contact us off the off the air we have voicemail locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's podcasts and newsletters and so on. You can contact us through there. You can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll uh, be back on the air next week.